0: is Our American stories, and it's time for our regular first job segment, where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans about their very first job. What it was, what they learned, how it helped them to get where they are today, and oftentimes funny stories from that first job. And if you have a first job story, give us a call at 844 627 8255 and record your story there. 844 627 8255 and record your story there. Yeah, record
1: your story night.
0: And story, story. And today's story is from Michael Dell, the founder of Dell, the computer technology firm that employs more than 100,000 people worldwide. And it's from Michael's terrific interview with the Academy of Achievement that we learned about his very first job. He told them that his first source of income came from something he was able to do Without leaving his home,
2: my mother was, uh, you know, a financial consultant. So she was sort of, you know, immersed in in the the world of stocks and bonds, and you know, I kind of became interested in, uh, you know, currencies and interest rates and you know, uh, what was going on with commodity prices and kind of an odd thing for a 13-year-old to be doing. But but I kind of found it interesting and. And, um, you know, uh, would sort of read reports and, you know, started playing around and investing in things and found just found that uh, that whole idea fascinating.
0: Michael continued, quote, I didn't actually have any need for income as a child, but I felt compelled to earn an income to fund my hobbies. So when I was 12, I got my real first job. I was a dishwasher in a Chinese restaurant and got promoted to be the water boy. And then I was an assistant maitre d'. So I was moving up pretty quickly in the Chinese restaurant business. And then I got recruited away to a Mexican restaurant. I was still pretty young, 12 or 13 years old. And then I got an interesting job. I was working at a stamp and coin store. And one of my jobs was when people would come and they wanted to sell their rings or silver, I would assess the metal and calculate what it was really worth and then try to negotiate with them to buy it at a good price. I was maybe 14 years old, so that was a lot of fun. And then when I was 16, I started to be able to drive. Of course, that really expands the number of things you can do because previously your only method of transportation is a bike or getting your parents to take you or something like that. So it kind of limited the available job opportunities. Here's Michael on what being able to drive enabled him to do.
2: When I was 16, I I got this job working for a newspaper in Houston. And my job was to sell subscriptions to the paper on the telephone. And um, I realized uh, two uh, things when I was doing this. I realized that uh, people that uh, were buying the newspaper generally had two things in common. Either they were moving to a new residence or they were getting married. And uh, it turns out that you could go find information about both of those things in enormous quantities. So, in the state that I lived in, in Texas, when you get when you want to get a marriage license, you have to file with the state, and it's public information. Uh, particularly the address that you want the license sent to once it's issued. So, I hired all my friends and went to every county in the surrounding 16 counties in Houston, captured the addresses of all the people that applied for marriage licenses, and sent them a direct mail offer to offer them the, the newspaper for a free trial and then a subscription.
0: Michael continued, quote, I made about 18000 in one year. My government economics teacher was particularly upset with me because we had this assignment in class to fill out our tax return. And so I filled out my tax return and turned it in. She said, well, this is obviously wrong. And I said, no, I did the assignment. This is my tax return. And she said, well, this can't be right. You made more money than I did. She was kind of upset with me. Michael went on to attend the University of Texas and began a side business of upgrading and enhancing early computers for folks. He found it a fun hobby that also allowed him to buy things like a stereo. But his family was upset. They were mostly doctors and they were worried that he wasn't focusing on his studies.
2: Around uh, Thanksgiving of 1983, um, you know, my parents kind of uh, uh, made me commit that I wasn't going to, you know, do this computer business anymore. I was only going to focus on my, my studies. And uh, and so for that lasted about 10 days. And it was during that time that I decided that, that, you know, I was gonna, I was gonna start a company. And, and so actually, you know, my parents kind of telling me to stop doing it is probably what caused the company to get created. If they hadn't done that, it might've just been a hobby. But what I, what I kind of uh, reflected on in those 10 days is I really love this and it was enormously exciting, tremendously fun. And so like uh, any other 18-year-old who wants to do what their parents don't want them to do, you just don't tell them. You know, and so that's, what I, and so that's what I
0: did. That's what he did, all right. He started his business with only a thousand dollars, and only in America, folks. And you know, honor thy mother and father. You bet. But you know, sometimes you got to tell mom and dad I disagree. And the anti-authoritarian streak in this great country is deep, and it's in our entrepreneurial class that we find it the most. We hear this story over and over. Henry Ford's father wanted him to farm. And Henry Ford said, sorry, Dad, ain't doing that. And we hear it over and over again. Take up the family business. No, thank you. Jimmy Stewart, remember, his dad wanted him to stay in the family business. Jimmy said, no, thank you. I'm going to try this thing called acting. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. First jobs. Michael Dell's, well, working in a restaurant when he was a really young boy. More after these messages. This is Leah Bib. This is our American stories.
3: Trees went back. Me and Dell were singing. Like anything was possible hit cruise control and rub my eyes the last time-
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about everything. And every once in a while, I like to throw to our fantastic team here at Our American Stories. And every once in a while, Jesse will let us know that he's up to something. And he's doing some thinking. And, of course, he does his deep, deep thinking. in, of all places, well, the shower. Shower thoughts. When I see a road sign that reads, do not pass... I'm
1: tempted to stop the car, turn it off, and wait for the police. God could have spared women the pain of childbirth by letting them lay eggs. If you don't want the egg to hatch, just make an omelette. You might not want to eat it, but the dog sure will. Whoever said that work will set you free was a real Nazi. Whenever an adult diaper commercial comes on TV, I wonder if I'm watching something made for people much older than I am. I saw a sign at the rest stop along the highway that said pet area, but I didn't know who or where to pet. Canned soup smells suspiciously a lot like canned dog food. So the dog pooped on the kitchen floor. I go to rub her nose in it and she starts to chow down like she's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I don't think she got the message. You ever catch yourself on Facebook using the computer only to look down on your smartphone to see who's on Facebook? Ugh. When you're eating sunflower seeds, every once in a while you get that one you just know had a dead bug inside, but you just keep eating them anyways. People who don't keep at least a car length away from me on the freeway should be beaten on the head with a hammer and sterilized with a rusty fork. It's a bad idea to leave your cat in the oven this time of year. Temps can reach well above 450 degrees and can kill in less than 10 minutes. January is a great time to leave your pets in the car. I like the word pariah. If it didn't have such a negative meaning, it would be a great name. Pariah. It's like piranha and mariah. As the ice cream van drove by our house for the ninth time this afternoon, I realized that the U.S. Post Office could really recapture the hearts and minds of the younger generation by selling ice cream while delivering the mail. I think it's funny that people who worship Darwinism want to subvert natural selection with mandated health insurance. If the GOP were to go with a Rand Paul, Paul Ryan ticket, the bumper stickers would be really confusing because they would say, Paul Ryan. I would chew off and eat my own foot just to live in Hawaii. It might be hard to go surfing, but at least I could bodyboard and tell people I lost my foot to a shark attack. I wish Play-Doh tasted as good as it looks. I mowed the lawn just before shaving my face this morning. Strange activities to do back-to-back.
4: Shower
0: of thoughts. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for that, Jesse. My pleasure. Keep them coming. Oh, oh, man. How long do you shower? <laughs> is <it> a five <laughs> <and a pair? laughs> Oh, and that brings us to another really interesting story from the crew, and it's a housing story, and we spent some time on it, and particularly how difficult it is now. For young people to scratch together the money to buy a home, and in certain parts of this great country, how almost no one can afford to live in these places, and San Francisco is one of them. And now it's time for a story a while back about an illustrator named Peter Berkowitz. When Peter realized how much money it would cost to rent an apartment in San Francisco, he got some friends together and built a wooden box. Now he rents a living room space for $400 a month and parks his $1,300 box there as his bedroom. You think that's crazy? Well here's USA Today's Natalie de Blasio reporting on why it makes well pretty good sense.
5: When you say paying $400 to live in a box is ridiculous, I say paying $3,600 for a one bedroom apartment sounds more ridiculous. My name is Natalie de Blasio and I moved to San Francisco in December for a job at USA Today. I'm a digital editor here and I write a column called Launched. It's about my experience living here as, you guessed it, a millennial in the middle of all this tech startup craziness. Little did I know the craziness would start before I even had an address. But let's back up. Peter Berkowitz pays $400 a month to live in a box on his friend's floor in San Francisco seriously. And you know what? It's brilliant. When his story hit the internet, people all around the world were alarmed. Why would anyone voluntarily live in a self-made box and pay to sleep in someone else's living room? Well, because in San Francisco, rent prices have gone through the roof. And as someone who just went through the insanity of the housing hunt in San Francisco. Berkowitz's box, or pod as he calls it, sounds only slightly short of completely reasonable. Here is why. It is impossible to find affordable housing in San Francisco. If you're single, petless, and in a place where you can live in a box, why waste your money on space that is increasingly expensive and not increasingly better? My requirements were simple, I thought. The apartment had to allow a cat. Phoebe Louise is not negotiable. It had to have one bedroom, have a bathroom, have a roof, and be inside the city. So we started the search for a cat-friendly one-bedroom apartment with the max price set at $2,500. That's more than we spent in Washington, D.C., but split between the two of us, my boyfriend Brent and I could make that work. But zero results came up. None. None. We paid for an Airbnb for one full month to help us get settled and ideally not be forced into the first available apartment we found. So we took the next week to search online for apartments. Here were the options I could pay $1,400 for a private bedroom in a house with other roommates, but I'd have to leave Brent behind and Phoebe Louise. Not happening. I could live in the, all caps here, penthouse DELUXE FULLY FURNISHED scam that had a price tag of $99 a month, I don't think so, or we could commute from San Jose. We gulped and bumped our search window up to $3,300. Finally, there were a number of options. I emailed all of them. Every. Single. One. Photos or no photos, regardless of neighborhood, distance from work, or square footage. I emailed with my friendliest compliments about their absolutely beautiful properties that I was sure would feel just like home. Out of 20 places I reached out to on list, only 7 were still available. They'd all been taken since the postings went up the day before, or even that morning. By the time I emailed back to schedule a tour, only 2 remained. We showed up on the doorstep of the first available open house 20 minutes early, and we were first in the door by about a minute and 10 seconds. As soon as the couple behind us started ooing and eyeing over the micro kitchen, and when I say micro, I mean micro, I realized I was already in a competition for an expensive, tiny apartment I didn't even know if I wanted. Three more couples came in while we were still there, and the man showing the apartment explained that it would go to whomever applied first. I took out my phone and started filling out our application before I'd even seen the bedroom. I vigorously tapped my reference information on the screen while Brent asked questions about utilities. Less than an hour later, all our forms and documents were in. The next morning, the landlord called and told us that seven other applications had been filed since ours, but since we snuck in just before them, the apartment was ours if we wanted it. $3,195 for a less than 700 square foot apartment. The only apartment we'd been able to find, see, and apply for where Brent, Phoebe, Louise, and I could live together without other roommates. There was a bathroom. There was a roof. We had 48 hours to make a decision. I frantically moved our price cap up to $3,350 to see if there was anything else, and I applied to the few new listings that popped up since the previous night. They were all either taken or waiting on confirmation from someone who had already applied. If we wanted, we could join the waiting list without seeing the place, but it was six people long. I hit refresh more times that day than when I was a high school senior waiting to see if I was accepted into my top choice college. We got in to see the second apartment, which was bigger and brighter, but also more expensive. As our 48-hour mark approached, we'd had no luck finding any other listings in our price range. So, we did it. The lease came, with $3,195 written right on it. I signed. I anxiously blocked out the fact that I was signing a year lease from an apartment that was almost $1,000 more a month than I planned. As expensive as it was, it would be cheaper than the studio Airbnb we were in. A studio. Even now, three months later, I poke around Craigslist to see if we missed a hidden deal. We didn't. The median cost for a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco is $3,590. We got, by someone's standards, a steal. On moving day, we walked into our new, small, empty apartment with nothing but suitcases. At least there wasn't much to furnish. We won't be buying much anytime soon. Unless we can find someone who wants to rent a box in our living room.
0: And that's just scary and sort of tragic for anybody young moving into San Francisco. And that again was Natalie de Blasio. We like to cover housing stories. And that one, well, it started as something sort of odd and quirky. A guy in a box. By the way, we want to talk to him. Let's see if we can book him on the show. I'd love to talk to Peter Berkowitz, who figured, I don't want to spend $35.90. I'll just build me a box inside the box. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to catch all of our stories. More after these messages. And this is our American stories. And we're back with one of our favorite subjects and one of our favorite segments, which we do now and then. And we call it random acts of kindness because they happen all the time. And you can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at random dot org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids and friends. And also make sure to leave your story there. Uh, they can use them and we can all use them. And here is one from Merrimack, New Hampshire, with some fire and emergency medical personnel who thought doing their jobs, well, it just wasn't enough.
5: Merrimack rescue personnel were called to lease a drive at about 3.30 on Wednesday afternoon. A homeowner who had fallen from the roof he was working on was quickly transported to a nearby hospital where he later died. After the call, the rescue team didn't feel their job was over.
6: They were concerned that... The house was, uh, roof was not finished, it was open, and rain could potentially cause more damage to the house, causing more pain to the family at that point in time. So they decided to take a drive back to the house and tarp the roof.
5: But once they got to the home, they realized the job was almost complete. After talking with the family, um, they allowed us to go ahead and complete his project. So um, we went ahead, started roofing that, um, and... Sooner or later, before we knew it, there were neighbors coming over and they were willing to help us. They jumped in and we were able to get it done pretty quickly. By 9 p.m., the group had finished the roofing and cleaned up the yard. Every time we go on a call to a
6: citizen in our community, that's their worst day, okay? And when we go out there, we need to try to make that day better for them.
0: And we love that story. And now we're going to Boulder Day, Texas, because we we pop all over the country and around all over the country and we do these segments and do these quick stories. And this one is a story about some kindness to animals that just happens to help kids too.
7: Clipper loves to chew on shoes. Story time at the Bolverde Area Humane Society. He can do tricks too. The program is just a few weeks old and parents like Abby Alcosser say their kids can't
5: get enough. It's a great way for the kids to learn to read and, and the animals being comforted. By interaction with other humans.
7: For older kids like Reed Weaver, it's a good way to keep up with their summer reading.
5: Where most children decide that it's summertime and they don't need to do it anymore and this continues on because that way when they start in the fall they've continued their reading and they aren't behind.
7: And the dogs get as much out of this as the people.
8: It's amazing what it does for the dogs as far as calming them down, becoming more socialized with the with the with just people take
7: weavers reading buddy lucas before this program started he rarely warmed up to anyone now
3: every time i go inside his cage he walks up to me and gives me a and lets me pet him
7: basically young readers are helping these dogs become more adoptable
3: i really want them to have um someone to um have a home with and i really want them to um, Be happy.
7: The Weavers took home a furry friend through this program yesterday. And shelter volunteers say it won't be long before more dogs and readers leave the shelter together too.
4: that's a
7: good one. Yes. I love getting that last barking.
0: Thank you. The panting. And the panting too. (laughs) By the way, we will do a segment on snoring dogs and we'll want you to send in your snoring dog sounds because I'm compiling my snoring pug sounds as we speak. And we'll play them soon. So we've covered Merrimack, New Hampshire. And we've covered Texas. And now we're heading to Wichita, Kansas. And this story is about a cop who's not afraid to look a little funny if it helps break down any kind of barrier.
8: The officer says he never expected this type of attention. But now that he has it, he's using it to send a powerful message of unity. Left foot,
4: let's
8: Freeze!
4: Everybody clap your hands.
8: AND GIVE A ROUND OF APPLAUSE TO THE INTERNET'S NEWEST DANCING SENSATION. Right WICHITA POLICE OFFICER Aaron MOSES.
9: Uh, SOMEONE APPROACHED ME LAST NIGHT AND TOLD ME I'M OFFICER, Officer BROWN WITH THE GET DOWN is, IS THEIR NAME FOR ME.
8: WHILE MOSES ADMITS HE'S NOT SURE WHERE THE NAME BROWN CAME FROM, THIS VIDEO OF HIM DANCING AT WICHITA'S FIRST STEPS COOKOUT IS PROOF.
9: THE COP KNOWS HOW TO BUST A MOVE. I HIT THE WHIP IN THE nene I GOT SOME LESSONS ON THAT.
8: THE 25-YEAR-OLD SAYS HE ALSO GOT SOME LESSONS ON LIFE. BORN AND RAISED IN WICHITA, MOSES SAYS HE ALWAYS dreamt OF BECOMING A COP, NEVER KNOWING OTHERS DIDN'T FEEL THE SAME WAY.
9: I WILL NEVER KNOW WHAT IT'S LIKE TO GROW UP AND NOT TRUST A POLICE OFFICER. AND I THINK ONCE YOU REALIZE THAT, IT'S A PRETTY PROFOUND THING that, THAT AFFECTS THE WAY YOU DO EVERYTHING.
8: ESPECIALLY HOW MOSES DOES HIS JOB.
9: I'LL NEVER KNOW WHAT IT'S LIKE TO GROW UP IN A MINORITY COMMUNITY. Um, BUT I CAN TRY MY HARDEST TO SERVE THEM THE BEST I CAN.
8: <laughs> EVEN IF THAT MEANS SHOWING HIS SILLY SIDE.
9: IF I NEED TO DANCE A LITTLE GOOFY AND, and DO THE CHA CHA SLIDE TO HELP PEOPLE SEE THAT I'M A REAL PERSON AND, and THAT I DO CARE AND THAT I TRUST YOU uh, THEN THAT'S WHAT I'M GOING TO DO.
8: DANCE HIS WAY INTO A BETTER RELATIONSHIP BETWEEN POLICE AND
9: PEOPLE. Till WE BUILD AN ATMOSPHERE OF TRUST, CARE AND COMPASSION WITH THE PEOPLE THAT WE SERVE AND THOSE PEOPLE ACCEPT THAT Uh, and trust in us, nothing's going to get better.
0: And finally, one from Minneapolis, Minnesota, about a veteran who found an unusual use for his marksmanship skills.
6: On Rush Lake, there's no mistaking the dot belonging to Jason Galvin. A crisp flag in the breeze just rings freedom. But this 4th of July weekend, very patriotic, Jason has taken his patriotism to new heights. That's the eagle's nest at which Jason glanced yesterday as he was making a run for bait. But then this caught his eye, a young bald eagle hanging upside down from a rope. Right then I thought, man, that's, that just doesn't look good. Turns out others had been watching the eagle with concern too for more than two days. That's when we decided that we really need to make some calls. Jason's wife called everyone she could think of from the fire department to the DNR. It was kind of one of those things where, what do we do, what can we do? The eagle was just too high. It's right up the road here.
5: He had jokingly said, well, we could try and shoot it down. I said, yep, that's what you're going to do. This
6: is a Ruger 1022. This might be a Most... good time to show you this. You knew what he was doing. That's Jason on one of his two tours in Afghanistan. He had told me that he was a veteran in the service and that uh, he wouldn't do it if he couldn't do it safely. Phil Mose gave the go. Just held it like this. And Jason started firing. I saw him in the scope. He was looking at me. But I sat there with the binos. I, I was like, wow, oh, he's an excellent shot. 150 times he fired. It was slow, precise shots. Jason cleared three branches.
5: Yeah, this is a pretty big branch.
6: Some gray stripes are from the bullets going through. Then down into the soft underbrush came the eagle as Jason shot through the rope. There was a lot of tears. It was breathtaking. Like, it was a beautiful moment. Jason kind of came to the rescue on it. Officer Mose started the trip to the Raptor Center. It rode in the front seat with me, and the whole time his head was up and he was alert. Fourth of July, you know, that's our bird. I can't let it sit there. Mission accomplished.
0: What a great story. And the last one I caught on the Wall Street Journal recently, and the headline was Baton Rouge flood victims get a helping hand from New Orleans, and the subtitle was Baton Rouge helped as though, as those hit by Katrina were harmed 11 years ago. Now Katrina survivors are returning the favor. And here's how that story started, and it was by Becky Strum. Lifelong New Orleans resident Connie Udo started calling old friends and gathering volunteers when she heard deadly floodwaters were pouring into thousands of homes in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Quote, the people of New Orleans, they really see how important it is to pay it back and pay it forward. Because it was, the, it was the volunteers of Baton Rouge who clearly helped us build our city. And we've got to return the favor. That's just neighbors helping neighbors. Ms. Udo was heading, along with many friends, almost 200 of them, to Baton Rouge for a week of work. And that's what we do in this country, folks. And Random Acts of Kindness is one of our favorite segments. Kudos to the Wall Street Journal for putting that on page three with a giant picture of Mrs. Udo holding a broom in a home that was just completely destroyed with a family she'd never met before. And by the way, a great interracial story white and black people helping each other out in a time of need. This is Lee Habib, Random Acts of Kindness. This is our American Stories. Help my mind. our american stories so now and again we like to celebrate great teachers and sometimes we hear from famous americans talking about their favorite teacher and sometimes we just hear stories about ordinary americans talking about their favorite teacher and we want to hear from you talking about your favorite teacher a teacher that impacted your life i think we've all had one or two if we're lucky three uh, and then we've had a lot of ordinary, decent teachers, but I'm talking about those ones that really made you see something in yourself you didn't see. And I think that's what the great teachers do. And push you a little harder than you would have ordinarily pushed yourself. Eight four four six two seven eighty two fifty five 627 8255 is the number. Eight four four six two seven eighty two fifty five. 627 8255 Leave your story. This week's teacher story was one of Ed Lucas's. Ed is the famous blind baseball broadcaster we interviewed earlier this year about his book, Seeing Home, a book that will soon be on a big screen near you. Ed told us about this one teacher at the Holy Family School for the Blind, and she was a nun, Sister Rose Magdalene. Let's take a listen.
10: Well, I was in school, and we stayed there from Sunday night to Friday afternoon, And one uh, Friday afternoon, my father came to pick me up for the weekend, and as uh, I came downstairs with my suitcase, he said to me, Ed, you have to put these uh, galoshes on. It's snowing like crazy out, and we should have over a foot and a half by midnight. So he said, you stand up against the wall and uh, put your foot out, and I'll get on my knees and push the collages one way and you push the other way and we'll get him on. So while we're doing that, Sister Rose Magdalene walks off the elevator and she turns and she sees my father and she goes, Mr. Lucas, what are you doing? He says, oh, Sister, I don't know if you had a chance to look outside to see how it's snowing and how much snow we have out there. So having Ed put on his collages <clears throat> and uh, this way, you know, we'll be able to go home. She said, oh, she said, let me help you. And I was He was on his knees pushing. She walked over to him, gave him a push in the chest and pushed him back and said, he's only blind. He's not handicapped. So let him put it on himself. And when he does, you can leave. an hour and a half later, we left.
0: And Sister Rose would echo Ed's father telling him and teaching him, blindness isn't a disability. It's just an inconvenience. A mantra Ed would adopt And would live by. And now it's time for our story of a song. We love bringing you the story of songs you likely know, but whose story behind it you don't. And today's is from the band Semisonic and their smash hit from the late 1990s, which reached number one on Billboard's Modern Rock chart and received a Grammy nomination for Best Rock Song of the Year. Here's their lead singer, Dan Wilson, telling the story of the song to his fellow Harvard alumni at their 25th reunion in 2008. A story about a dilemma many bands come to face.
11: The singer of the band is pregnant, or or the singer's woman, friend, wife is pregnant. And um, after all the backslapping and excitement die down, an unexpected emotion descends upon the band members. Kind of a dread a fear, it's it's kind of a clammy-handed fear. And it's because they don't even know why they're so nervous, but it's because of this. They instinctively know that as soon as Junior arrives on the scene, the next thing that's gonna come is a song about Junior. (laughs) (laughs) Written by the singer, guaranteed to be that singer's favorite song he or she ever wrote, and in grave danger of being somewhat cheesy, or perhaps on the other side of the planet cheese. <laughs> um, and I've actually written an example. I tried to put myself in that uh, mindset. <laughs> Just a verse to show you um, how bad I can get. It's for a rock band. If you guys have rock bands, you can you take this idea if you want to. Uh, <laughs> I planted a seed And I watched it grow And now you're here, Junior And I'm so, so, in love with you Oh, you Cause you look like me What do you say? I'm the singer. You're the band. What do you say? You know, we can get someone to cover that. It's really cool. Uh, maybe that's for the next album. <laughs> it gets personal because when um, my wife Diane and I were expecting um, our, our one and only child, um, I knew this. I knew that my bandmates Jacob and John, who's not here, were feeling that dread. And so I did what any good sneak would do and I hit my uh, junior song. Um, and I did it in Plain View, which a good sneak knows is the best place to hide something. Um, and I hit it so well in Plain View that millions and millions of people heard the song, and bought the song, and, and, and didn't get it. They think it's about being bounced from a bar, but it's about being bounced from the womb. And uh, I'm, not, I'm telling the honest truth right now. And, In order to help you all believe me and not think I'm just doing a bit of showbiz at the moment, um, we're gonna just think about the lyrics as they go. And a lot of you, when this song was um, familiar, uh, were busy having children of your own and might have come out from under that rock several years later, so if you've never heard this, it's not a problem. (laughs) It's, It's called Closing Time.
0: And what a story, what a story of a song. And by the way, he has also written and produced the Adele hit, Someone Like You. On the story behind that song, Dan once said, quote, The recording was intended as a demo, and I was thinking, oh, they're going to make a big version of this. Strings, angelic choirs, a big Chrissy Hine power ballad. But by the end of the first day, the demo was sounding lovely and affecting. But it was only half written. There were no words on the second verse or the bridge as I remember. Adele came to the studio the next day and said I played it for my manager and my mum. I was a little nervous about this Because I don't like people to hear works in progress I asked her what they thought of the song My manager loves it And me mum cried, Adele told him Let's take a listen to his version And then what a great singer does with a great song Adele's after his
11: I heard that you're Settled down that you found someone and you're married now I heard that your dreams came true Guess he gives you things I couldn't give to you
3: But I couldn't stay away I couldn't fight it I had hoped you'd see my face And that you'd be reminded that for me It isn't over Never mind
0: This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song and a songwriter. More after these messages.
12: Flying high You know how I feel Sun in the sky You know how I feel Breeze drifting by You know how I feel It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new light.
0: This is Our American Stories, and for the hour, cover songs. We saw Rolling Stone Reader's 10 Best Covers, and we thought, let's do that, and let's pick some of our own. You're listening to the 1965 Broadway musical The Roar of the Grease Paint and the song The Smell of the Crowd. And Rolling Stone thought that the version you're about to hear was the best cover of this song and came in at number ten, Here's the Muse singing Feeling Good
4: but Flying high
0: And that was the Rolling Stone reader's opinion. But Jesse's Nina Simone singing Birds Feeling
12: Good. High, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me Ooh, And I'm feeling good Fish and the sea, you know how I feel of running tree, you know how I feel blossom on the tree, you know how I feel it's a new dome, it's a new day, it's a new life for me and I'm feeling good.
0: And now we're gonna go to number nine, and it's so hard to turn off any Nina Simone song. Yeah, I think Jesse won too. And originally written for the soundtrack of Pat Garrett and the Billy the Kid, Knocking on Heaven's Door gave Bob Dylan a much-needed hit after years of being written off as a washed-up 60s folk act.
4: Knock, 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 knock.
0: And then there was the Rolling Stone Reader's Choice. And, well, everybody's covered it, Eric Clapton, YouTube. But in 1990, Guns N' Roses recorded it for their Days of Thunder soundtrack and introduced it to an entirely new generation. It has been a staple of their live show ever since. going to rip through the rest of Rolling Stones' reader's choice for top 10 covers. Let's go out with Axel, Guns N' Roses, and their cover of Bob Dylan's classic.
3: My girl, my girl, don't lie to me. Tell me where did you sleep last night? Come on, tell me, baby. In the pond, in the pond, where the sun don't ever shine. I was you all night.
0: You're listening to Lead Belly. Where did you sleep last night? We're hitting Rolling Stone's Reader's Choice Best Covers. And let me tell you, I'm a huge Lead Belly fan and I don't think there are many better singers. But when I saw Nirvana cover this song, one of the last if not last songs in that amazing Unplugged in 1990, well, take a listen to Kurt Cobain do this and anybody who doubted his talent as a singer, not just a writer, well, they had to rethink everything.
3: a shiver the whole night through, the husband was a hard workin' man, just about Should sure.
0: just can't stop that song it's impossible and now number 7 here's the original it's Dolly Parton's Jolene 1973 classic, it's the voice of a desperate woman begging a more attractive woman to not steal her man. Not a single word is reserved for the man in that love triangle, by the way. The White Stripes, Jack White, recorded a snarling, feedback-laden cover in 2000. Let's take a listen.
3: Jolene, Jolene Please don't take him Just because you can Your beauty is beyond compare With flaming locks form Of on hair With diamond skin And eyes of emerald green And your smile's like a breath of spring
12: Jolie and I had to have this talk with you because my happiness the depends on you and one
0: And we are covering Rolling Stone's Reader's Pick of the Ten Greatest Cover Songs. And now it's time for number six. Here's the original, the Isley Brothers' Twist and Shout. In their 1963 LP Please Please Me, in a single day they recorded that song, so when it came time for John Lennon to sing a cover of the Isley Brothers Twist and Shout, near the end of the session, his voice, it was just shredded. He rallied by gargling milk and swallowing cough drops before nailing the song in just two takes. This is Our American Stories, the top ten reader's choice covers a Rolling Stone. And by the way, what made this song so special were the raw vocals of John Lennon. He was never happy with them, but that's what made this song special. More after these messages. are American Stories. Rolling Stone readers picked the top ten greatest cover songs and that's the original version of David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World and then Nirvana again this is the second of theirs in this top ten and here's their version again MTV Unplugged 1993 We're winding down we're getting into the top five now at number four well here's the original off sergeant peppers it seemed like a throwaway and a great throwaway take a listen
3: what would you think if i sang got it would you stand up and walk out on me
0: And by the way, you rarely heard Ringo sing there on Honey Don't, another rockabilly tune, but very rarely a perfect drummer. But my goodness, every once in a while, he'd hit it out of the park as a singer too. But the cover that Rolling Stone fans went for, well, it was one of the most indelible images from Woodstock. Joe Cocker looking so, well, just stoned. He could barely stand upright. Belting out this same classic. It was like an old soul standard by the time he was done with it. Take a listen.
12: What would you do
13: if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on Let me? Lay out me your
12: ears and I'll sing you a song. I will
4: try not to sing out of key. Yeah. Oh, baby, how do my... you know I can? All I need is my baby. How do you love I can? my
0: American Stories, we're doing the countdown Rolling Stone readers pick The top ten greatest cover songs And there are very few Singers who could dominate a lineup Like Woodstock's But he stole the movie, he stole the show And then you see John Belushi's Take, because you know that's all John Belushi wanted to do Was beat Joe Cocker You knew it when he did it This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories The final three when we come back stories. You're listening to Leonard Cohn's Hallelujah. His career was at a low point when he wrote that song in the early 80s. His label had no interest in even releasing the track or the rest of the songs that eventually came out in his 1984 album Various Positions. The track was a fan favorite though but it didn't receive much love until The Velvet Underground's John Cale created a stripped down piano version for a 1991 Leonard Cohn tribute album. But it was this cover by Jeff Buckley that Rolling Stone readers put in at number three best covers. And here is the remarkable Jeff Buckley who died of far too early and premature death. And now we're getting down to number two. And here's the original. It's Nine Inch Nails Hurt. so And then in 1994, well, Trent Reznor remembers the first time he saw the video for Johnny Cash's cover. Tears started welling up, he said. I realized it wasn't my song anymore. Let's take a listen.
13: I hurt myself today is
0: now, and I don't know how you put something ahead of that, I don't think it's possible. That's our number one for the Rolling Stone readers. Well, here's the original by Bob Dylan.
3: There must be some way out of here Said the Joker to the thief There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Businessmen, they drink my wine. Plowmen, dig my earth. None of them along the line
0: know what any of it is worth. And here's the number one. No need for an introduction.
12: Must be some kind of way out of here say the joker to the thief there's too much confusion i can't get no relief business man there drink my wine come and dig my earth none will laugh Up this, world. Hey.
0: this is our American Stories Rolling Stone Readers Top 10 Greatest Cover Songs Take a listen